Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Knowing our history helps us interpret our present. When we know our backstory, we are much better able to understand what's going on around us, the current struggles we're having, and what we should do about it. Let me give you a personal example. When we understand better our family story, some of the dynamics that have made grandma the way she is, or grandpa and that uncle and this aunt and maybe our own siblings, when we understand that, We're able to better interpret what's going on in our own families, in our own relationships. That history helps us interpret and respond to our present. Let me use another example. We all know that we're in the middle of quite a conversation about racial injustice and what we should do. Well, when we dig back into our history, when we understand and read about the history between black and white people, uh, between indigenous peoples and the government of Canada, for example, the the church's role in residential schools, when we understand that more, we're able to be part of this conversation that's happening in a much more fruitful way. Knowing our history helps interpret our present, and we are better able to know what we are to do. Now, why do I say all of this? Well, because we are getting into the story of the Old Testament kings as they're given to us in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. And they were written to help the people of Israel understand what was happening to them, understand their story, particularly why they were now in exile, why they'd been kicked out of the land that God had given them and were living in among foreign lands, Babylon and Assyria, hundreds of years after King David. It's helping them understand what had happened and what they were supposed to do about it. And so the writer of Kings takes them all the way back into their own story, tracing it through from start to finish so that they could understand their own struggles, their own reality, and how they needed to respond. So let's go back. We're continuing in our series called Renewed, where we're looking at the whole story arc from Genesis to Revelation through the Bible. Last week, Peter Hambry took us into the first couple kings of Israel, King Saul, who was number one and was a terrible failure. And it wasn't too long into his reign when God said, whoa, false start. We're going we're gonna to start over with someone else. And well, that was King David, who was the greatest king Israel ever had. And though we had some epic failings, he was a king always devoted to the Lord, devoted to following God with all of his heart. And it was to King David that Yahweh gave some incredible promises that his kingdom, that his line would always endure. And God's covenant to David uh, takes the promises that were given to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, these promises that we had seen fulfilled over and over again, and adds an important element, something that we hadn't seen before. That is the idea of kingship, of kings, of a kingdom, that all that God had promised to Abraham, he would now fulfill through a kingdom in Israel, through a particular kingly line, the line of David. 
This covenant that God makes with David doesn't nullify the promises he made to Abraham, but rather it deepens it. It expands it even. It leads us forward in the story. Listen to a few snippets from that covenant in 2 Samuel 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says, speaking to David. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Now, God says to David, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and are no longer disturbed. He then goes on to say, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your kingdom will be established forever. What an incredible covenant. What incredible promises that God made to David and by extension to his kids. God wants to pour his blessing out on the people of God, the people of Israel. He's going to do it through David's family, through these kings that would follow out of David. And as a result, continue to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham to bless the whole world through him. And so when David dies, his son Solomon ascends to the throne. And wow, does he look promising. He is everything we had ever hoped would come in a king. He was, he was young, yet he was wise. He was eager. He was devout. He was a constant learner, a, a voracious student of plants and proverbs, a genius of animals and administration. He was a follower, a devout follower in his father David's footsteps. He was faithful. He oversees the construction of a magnificent temple, replacing the old tent from Israel's traveling days. And the glory of of the Lord descends on this new temple, showing that God had determined to place his name there. and, And this would be a central place of worship. And there was huge celebrations, incredible celebrations. And the whole nations of the world, all the nations of the world are flooding into Jerusalem to sort of sit and bask in the glory of this king, Solomon. It seems that all that God had hoped for a king fully devoted was coming true in David's son, Solomon. However, the reader, the writer of the king's shifts at the beginning of 1 Kings 11, we see him begin to place a caveat on this. However, and that's when we begin to see that in spite of how glorious it looked, Not all was right with David's son. 1 Kings 11 begins like this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. It had already mentioned earlier that he'd married her, a political alliance for sure, but he went on from there. And the wives he took were Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nation's that the Lord had said to the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. And then he was excessive. He had 
700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And so just a few verses later in verse 11, the Lord says to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God told his kings that their kingdoms were dependent on their hearts. And yet, with Solomon, he didn't follow the Lord completely as his father had done. And right there, woven into the life of the third king of Israel were the seeds of its idolatrous destruction. Because within a generation, right after the death of Solomon, exactly what the Lord had said would happen did happen. The northern ten tribes of Israel broke away from the southern kingdom of Judah, leaving the kings of David with only one tribe left to rule, centered around Jerusalem. The unified kingdom of Israel, all this hope for a, a country and a nation that would, that would together live under the reign of God, it only actually saw three kings ruling it. That's it. Saul, who was a failure, David, who was a success, and then Solomon, who was filled with such promise, but in the end, actually was the result of its ruin. And now the writer of the book of Kings, it's really one book, but in our Bibles divided into two volumes, he goes on to then narrate the story of the Kings. And it's a bit confusing because he goes back and forth, or you could say side to side, or maybe more accurately geographically, he goes up and down the split kingdom of the north in Israel and down in the south in Judah. And it's a bit dizzying for us as readers because not only are the names difficult and sometimes similar, but he goes back and forth and certain kings overlap other kings and, you know, live longer and die sooner and all of that. And for us, reading from the outside, it can be quite confusing, quite a mindful. But the narrator does something very helpful for us all the way along. It's very practical. As he gives us this overview of these kings, he always states up front the king's spiritual legacy. Right at the start, let me give you an example from 1 Kings 15. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's the guy who became the king up north, Abiah became king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. And then here it is. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. 
And then, the, and then the narrator goes on to tell us things, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, about the life of that king. Now, not only is this super handy, because as outside readers, we can always know right at the start where this king's story is going, how they line up with covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, or maybe partial faithfulness, or usually unfaithfulness. But it tells us the point of the story of the kings. We can get lost in all these different stories, but what this narrator is doing is helping us see the point. The point is kings that were fully devoted to Yahweh led and it resulted in goodness for their country, for their people. But those who were not devoted, who didn't follow the ways of David, but followed other evil fathers that they had, well, destruction came. God was searching for kings that would be fully devoted to him and for the most part, his search was futile. Most of the northern kingdom almost exclusively were bad kings and that we can keep fairly straight. In the south, in Judah, David's own line, the only actual dynasty that followed from David, they were more often bad than not but there are some notable exceptions, kings like Josiah or Hezekiah who were faithful even though their faithfulness didn't really turn back the tide. Sometimes these kings were at odds with each other and often they were allies. But one by one, the writer takes us through this national history, takes us through as readers, but particularly these Israelites now in exile, takes them through their own spiritual backstory, telling them this story to show how they got to where they are. Why they are now in Babylon, in Assyria, and demonstrating to the life of their leadership and the life of their own forefathers, a life of unfaithfulness that had brought them to where they are. And this was so important because by the time this book was a bestseller, First and Second Kings, as it were, Assyria had long defeated the northern kingdom and hauled them off. Babylon had swept in a while later, about 587, and they had hauled off Judah as well. God had kicked them out of the land, just as he said he would do, but now he has sent prophets, writers, to help them understand their story and understand what they are due to do today. And so the story of Kings... However we read it, it was designed to answer burning questions like, why are we here in Babylon? What did we do? How come this has happened to us? Why are we stuck in this mess? And is there any way out? In particular, for those who are faithful, they'd be asking the question, what about the promises that God made to David? Or better yet, to Abraham. What about us? And what can we do? It's not like they hadn't been warned over and over again. You know, the kings are central figures in the book of First and Second Kings, but there's actually another group of figures who figure very prominently, and that is the prophets themselves, particularly Elijah and Elisha. Because as these kings were leading their people into destruction, God would raise up men and women to warn, to challenge to, to, to tell them not to go that way, but to come back to faithfulness to Yahweh, that if they continue to persist, they would be destroyed. And so much of the book of First and Second Kings also features amazing stories of confrontation between Yahweh and Baal, for example, in the figures of Elijah and Elisha, whatever kings are around them. The greatest ones, Elijah and Elisha, were also joined by other ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And God spoke through these prophets, God who longed for kings and a kingdom 
with people with devoted hearts. He kept sending generation after generation, warning, not wanting to bring punishment, not wanting to bring them to exile, warning them to return, but it was to no avail. No one would listen. And eventually nothing could stop this downhill train, even though right at the end of the story, there were some incredibly faithful kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. But the general drift and eventually the cascade into idolatry and injustice led them to expulsion, to exile, to the end. And when Israel was finally removed, the writer steps back and he reflects on why. Gives us quite a bit of detail, actually. It's important because he's trying to help his readers and us even by extension know why this mess has happened. Why there's exile in the first place. Again, helping them understand their history so they can interpret their present. In 2 Kings 17, the writer steps back and says, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, and they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the king of Israel, kings of Israel had introduced. And he just goes on to detail all the different ways that the kings and that the kingdom had rejected God's ways. And he details it over and over again. They, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't follow. They were not fully devoted. And as a result, verse 21, he tore Israel away from the house of David. And eventually, they were taken from their homeland into exile, into Assyria, And the writer, this is, the book isn't even done yet. And the writer says, and they're still there. And then he goes on to tell the rest of the story. And the same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah, albeit decades later. Well, very quickly, how does this help these exiled Israelites in three key ways? Knowing their history, they can then all agree. We are here as a people because we were unfaithful as a people. We're not here by accident. We're not here by just the shifting of the geopolitical winds or maybe the economy crashed or we're not here because God is weak or forgot us. We're actually here because we were unfaithful. We're here because God, who is always faithful, upheld his end of the covenant. He had told us from day one that if we did not follow him with fully fully devoted hearts, that if we did not come to him when we needed forgiveness, that if we did not lean on him in every area of our life, that, that if we didn't live under this covenant with him, it would result in exactly what has happened to us. We've been unfaithful. But knowing that, knowing that about their story means that they can repent and take responsibility. And this is the beautiful thing. The story isn't told just to bash them on the head with their previous sins of their generations and families and kings, but rather so that they can look around them and say, oh, if that's why, then how we should live today is informed by that. We can repent as a people. We can turn to faithfulness. We can be responsible. We can listen to the Torah, God's word as it's been given to us. We can adhere to the words of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others who are among us now and be the faithful people of God, even in Babylon or Assyria or wherever we find ourselves. We can understand the sins of the past and in that way, live in God's righteousness today. And it was a powerful moment for them. 
That example is still true for us today. Of course, we recognize the parallels. When we understand the sins of the past, we can better live righteously today, whether that's in our own personal families, whether that's as we consider the racial injustice that continues to happen. Wherever we look at it, the better we understand our past, the more we're able to live righteously today. And then, of course, the third point is that there's hope. As we understand our past and we repent and we're responsible, well, there's hope. And the prophets were bringing that hope to the people of Israel, telling them that God hadn't forgotten them, that there was a new day coming, that there would be a day when they would return. And beautiful things were spoken through many of the prophets to, to give these people in exile a hope for the future. Well, what are the implications for us, the applications for us? I think at least three things. When we consider the book of Kings, first of all, it's interesting because, of course, it's kind of a study in leadership, isn't it? Dan Mawson and I have been taking in the Global Leadership Summit this week, and in fact, that's why I'm filming it here at his house. And, and, and it struck me so strongly, going through Kings again, how leadership really does matter. The story of the Kings is a story of how leadership affects everybody that the kings who actually devoted themselves to Yahweh and pursued righteousness and led well and cared for their people and put the benefits of their people above them, guess what? Their people flourished. But the kings who sought wealth, who abused their own people, who enslaved their populace, who, who sought only for their own benefit, who sought other gods and mixed it in with whatever they thought they should do, well, those kings oversaw the destruction of their own people. We heard it again and again this week in the Global Leadership Summit that when leaders get better, everybody gets better, that, that good leaders influence others around them. Well, we see some of that in Kings, but we see a lot of the other, uh, how bad leadership, harmful leadership, brings destruction and hurt to so many. And it should live out in living color in the book of First and Second Kings. It challenges me because, of course, as I consider my own leadership, as I consider the leadership around us, we can take lessons from the past, can't we? As we think about how we can be responsible today and lead as leaders who are fully devoted to Jesus, following him in his ways. The second one I've repeated several times, but it's worth reflecting a little more on, and that is that understanding our own history helps us respond faithfully today. And there's an invitation here to look more deeply into our own past, to understand more fully what has happened so that we can properly interpret and respond to our present. I'm on a personal journey as I explore my own family history, as I understand better the things that have influenced me and the kind of uh, character traits and ways of interacting that I've inherited. The better I understand that, the better I'm able to uh, respond in in healthy ways today, whether that's in my own marriage or my own family or my own relationships. I also have been on quite a personal journey of understanding more about our racial history. I joined with other covenant pastors on a pathway being offered within our church, um, an anti-racism pathway, where we're exploring, well, our own history, exploring Canadian history. I'm, it's other covenant uh, Canadian pastors that I'm, I'm with and we're going to be exploring and reading and watching documentaries and trying to understand our relationship in Canada, particularly with our indigenous peoples, but others, Japanese. Trying to understand our own story, 
so that we can better interpret and live righteously in our present. These are very important for us as Christians, very important for us as seekers, that we understand our history so we can live faithfully today. And then the third implication, just so clear all through this, is that God is a God who makes good on his promises. And I think you've heard this again and again and again through this series, that God longs to do good for his people. He longs to bring goodness for his people, that he will do everything within his power in and for his people to make that goodness possible. That even when things get difficult, and often because of our own doing, God never forgets us. He never forgets his people, which actually brings us to our finish. You see, the story of the kings is almost as dismal as the book of Judges, with God's patient warning and then his people's just continual downward spiral. And this search for a king who would be fully devoted, as fully devoted as David, seems very elusive. And in the end, the destruction, the exile, is inevitable. And that can seem awfully depressing. But the writer does something interesting right at the very end of his story. He gives us just a sliver of hope. It's, it's, it's just a tease, really, but it's there. The final verses of 2 Kings is about the very last king of Judah, a great, 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 I don't know how many great, grandson of King David. He has now been in exile for 37 years, and in those 37 years, he's been in prison, just languishing there. But it says, the very end, the last few verses, that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year of Awel Marduk, king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison robes and for the rest of his life, ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. Did you hear that? It's very subtle. Just a slight lift, almost really just a whisper of hope, but it's there. In this shift from prison to palace, we're reminded that God has not forgotten David's family. He's not forgotten the promises he made to David about his family, about his kids. And here he is providing one of David's long-lost sons, as it were, a table in the presence of his enemies. And maybe, just maybe, there's a chance that God will restore his people once again. And through the prophets that he sends again and again, to minister and speak to the exiles, God begins to make that hope more and more clear, more and more encouraging. That there is a king who will come in the line of David, fully devoted to God, a king who will inherit all those promises that have been given to David about a king who would never end. But this king, (laughs) he would be fully devoted. How would it happen? Well, when the New Testament begins, the first thing we discover The part we skip over pretty fast is Matthew's genealogy, which I know is kind of boring and is filled with names that are difficult to pronounce. But when we take this narrative seriously, we see that in the last two sections of the narrative, it's filled up with a lot of kings. And in fact, right in the center, it's filled up with these mostly failed kings that we've actually read about in 1 and 2 Kings. 
And when we take First and Second Kings and we lay it over Matthew's genealogy, we find something amazing. Matthew starts with Abraham, traces through to David. And then from David, we get this who's who of Judah's kings, these southern kings that we read about. Some who were faithful, but most who were not. And we find out that David has Solomon, and Solomon has Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, Abiah, and all the way through, and Asa, and Jehoshaphat, good kings and bad. Hezekiah is there, but so is Manasseh. He's the worst. But then also Josiah is there, and then Jehoiachin off into Babylon. But then Matthew keeps going and traces down through the line, name after name, until he covers names that we don't even know about. We haven't heard about them. We don't know stories of them until he stumbles upon a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And what we discover in all of this is that the search for a fully devoted king continued. And it wound its way through this story of unfaithfulness and exile where hope had been shattered and all had been lost. And then there had been sort of a return, but there had been so much brokenness and so much darkness. But the search for the devoted king continued and wound down through this family line of David right to Jesus himself. The king that Israel really needed, the one who would be fully devoted to Yahweh and would lead his people to the true, abundant, flourishing that God had intended, he would come. And God, who is faithful, would finally bring his people home from exile, not just physically, but spiritually home, freeing them from the inside out to be the people that he had always intended them to be. Which is why when King Jesus first arrived, his opening words were, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. When we look back, whether it be the story of the people of God or our own personal story, our unfaithfulness does come into focus. When we look back at the history of Canada, history of the U.S., the history of the world, we can see the bloodshed, the violence, the sin. Our unfaithfulness may come into clear focus, but even more so, the faithfulness of God. And friends, praise be to God for his faithfulness. That faithfulness of God is what has overcome our unfaithfulness. That in Christ, a fully devoted king did come to be for us what we couldn't be for ourselves, to be for the world what we could not be. And he took up his throne on a cross so that his faithfulness would meet our unfaithfulness and his faithfulness would wash over and carry away all the things that have brought us in the world destruction. The story of the kings leads directly to the story of the king. And it's in following him, following him, the fully devoted king, that our lives can be made whole and restored and renewed as God had always intended. We're going to finish today with a beautiful song. A song we may have heard a few weeks ago, sung by our mission friends at City Collective, but a song that I wanted to bring back because It really ends us today by singing all glory be to Christ. Listen to these words. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. And the less the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Join in as we sing.
Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. 
Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.